Let's go. Hello, and welcome to Sustain Open Source Design. Is it Sustain Our Design? No, it's Sustain Open Source Design. Yes, yes. Sustain Open Source Design. SOS. <laughs> what are Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sustain Open Source Design podcast. We are coming to you today live from Penpot Fest in Barcelona. Super happy to be here. There's a lot going on outside because Barcelona. So if you hear bells or if you hear skateboards or children playing life and the life of the city. So today we have with us Alonso Torres, who's a front end dev at Penpot. Hi, and welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Cool. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do at Penpot? Sure. Well, I'm part of the front-end team in Penpot. I'm responsible of some of the <laughs> amazing features we are trying to put it there. For example, yeah, we just unveiled the grid layout and the HTML export. And yeah, it's I'm part of the team that are responsible for that, yeah. And did you join Penpot because of open source or because of like the design angle? Like what attracts you to it? Well, Penpot, well, it's developed by Kaleidos and Kaleidos, we have been very advocates for open source for years. So Penpot started in one of our internal hackathons that you, we used to, well, we are still doing it. Every six months we do like a full week hackathon that we do personal, well, anything we want, really. We call it Pi Week, as in Personal Innovation Week. And in we do mostly open source there. We It's like a, our private space where we can really do whatever we want, but with open source tools and usually with resolving an open source stuff. Well, maybe a product, but not always. It has been different kind of output from there. So Penpot was born in one of those. Yeah, I've been interested in, in open source forever, really, since university. I studied computer science and in there I participated in a lot of open source and Linux uh, groups. What do you think are kind of the top features? And not features like particular from the, the, the software, but like wood onboarding or what things do you pay attention to mostly because you're building in this way? So for us, the workflows are hugely important to know how the tool is going to be used in a team that is not the classical team. Maybe they are not on site. Maybe they are a distributed team. So for us, I think workflows are a key thing when we try to put it in their shoes. No, Open source means that you have to, of course, work in the open, but that doesn't only means put the code out there, but means also having the decisions in the open, having your roadmap. We try to work always in the open and Taiga, and we don't really have internal tools except the, maybe the chat, our internal chat. It's more for not generating noise, more that we don't want to open it. <laughs> the openness, and that means not only code, but also communication for us is hugely important. And trying to nurture a community, uh, that's another key thing for me, I suppose. I'm really excited about talking to you as an open source developer who is working on e-design. So because Penpot is a design tool that's open source, 
most people who contribute to open source will be attracted to use Penpot. And considering that Figma right now is not completely as free as it used to be. So I'm sure you get like a lot of suggestions about adding new features. And most people would want you to put in features that are already in Figma. And so it doesn't look like a competition between Penpot and Figma. How do you like prioritize these issues, these requests for additions and features? I sometimes get maybe I'm opinionated that the, the competition, we don't really add a competition of Figma. Figma is another world, no? I like to think that we are a, an alternative, no? We are an open source alternative. About the prioritization, we try to let the community be the one, the voice that stir us towards one thing or another. So we have our internal goals. But when we deploy, we listen to the community to see what they, they are waiting and what they, they want. I put the example of the, when we deploy the, the flex layout, the community very soon started to asking us for the CETA index and, and the absolute uh, positioning. That's our main focus of priority, the, the features that the people want. Considering it's open source, I would love to think that there are some people who work in Penpot that get paid and then there are contributors as well. So what would you describe that process from the de um, design handoffs to developers? What's that process like? Most of the core contributors are working for the Penpot company, no? Well, for Kaleidos, that is the, the company that creates also as Penpot and Taiga. We are talking all the time. So we usually follow a agile methodology all the designers are inside the same team as the developers and we work with the Scrum. Usually what we do is the design are the ones leading the charts, so to speak. So they are the ones that have their internal meetings, kind of listening to the community, decide what are, which are the priorities. One of the team usually is the one that creates the design. So we don't really work with that workflow where the first is the UX and then the design, but it's kind of uh, hand in hand, no? So once the development is done, it starts the conversation with the developers. So we have technical reviews internally where we basically discuss with a design, many in Penpot, what changes make more sense. I mean, what would be the roadmap for that feature? Because usually when a designer takes a feature, usually it's sometimes too big for a first release. So they try to think big and then we, the developers try to narrow it down so we can face it better. So it doesn't make any, uh, much sense to have a huge feature that we will take uh, maybe four months to develop. Maybe we can talk and try to narrow it down. And that's the point of view that developers are, I think, are better suited for because sometimes Maybe the designer thinks that they will take months and it's something stupid. <laughs> and the other way around, it's uh, sometimes something that seems like so easy. It's huge. It's very complicated. Outside of the Penpot work environment, do you have any impressions you would like to share about collaboration between design and code? Some things that can be applied elsewhere or kind of more general impressions about how that's generally done and how should it be done? Yeah, I, I think it's a huge challenge and there is not a silver bullet. The problem is that sometimes it's kind of hard in a in an open source project 
having a back and forth communication between developers uh, and designer because for us it's easy because we are really the same thing. We, we communicate every day. But if you are working in an external project that maybe you don't know the, the people that are behind, you don't know what are their schedules, for example, where are they living, you don't know anything. It's very hard sometimes to communicate, you know, the communication. We are trying in Pempo to give some tools, but I'm the first that I think it's not enough. We need a lot of room for improvement in that sense. For example, I think a very good approach uh, right now, it's the chat are a great tool precisely for this kind of communication. You can put your design, talk with the developers in a back and forth fashion. So yeah, I think that's the challenge, no? Thank you for that. Alonso, tell us today, first day at the fest, how mm -hmm. are you feeling? Any highlights from today? Well, I feel great. I'm really, really impressed. I'm part of the product team, but I'm not really involved in the organization of the event. So I'm kind of also a guest here and I'm really impressed with all the things that they have prepared, their proper organization. It's also very, very nice to see the, all the communities, not only the Pempot community, because here we have a lot of people from, <laughs> from everywhere for a lot of different communities. And it's incredible, really. I've been able to talk with a lot of people from different backgrounds. Where can we find you online? Twitter is the best place. I read that if somebody wants to get in touch, just, uh, yeah, it's at uh, Alotor, it's my handle. And there they can contact me or yes, send me funny memes. I <laughs> <laughs> We will do. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you everyone for listening. If you have any feedback, you can always email us, podcast at sustainoss.org. You can rate us on Apple or Spotify, follow us on Twitter at sustainoss or join our discourse. We're everywhere really. So thank you everyone. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Sustain Open Source Design Podcast. We're on day two of Penpot Fest in lovely Barcelona. The weather is slightly cooler today, so the walk into the venue for recording the podcast was slightly more pleasant for myself. Hi, I'm Errol. I am your solo host this morning for this episode, but we have a fantastic guest with us today to talk about all the different things that they are working on. We have Maureen Duffy. Hi, Maureen. How are you? Pretty good. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. So you are the Senior Principal Interaction Designer at Red Hat. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you primarily work on there and maybe go into a little bit of depth about the cool stuff that you were talking about yesterday in your talk at Penpot Fest? Sure. So my role at Red Hat is basically I'm an upstream open source designer. Designing upstream and honestly just working upstream first is sort of a core principle at Red Hat in our engineering department. Doing design upstream makes a lot of sense because if you wait until you're downstream and productizing something, it's a lot more time and investment because you have designers coming in after the core architectural decisions and all those kinds of things have already been made. So you're sort of patching something rather than being involved directly. So, you know, the case to be made there as well, if the designers are upstream, when those decisions are being made, those decisions can be made with more of the user's workflows in mind. And I think it's a better way to develop software. I'm part of the community design team that is not just a Red Hat team, but it's a, an open community team. And it came out of the Fedora design team, which is a community-based team that 
does a lot of design tasks around Fedora, like the release artwork and, you know, our infrastructure apps. We do UX for infrastructure apps, icons, logos, all that kind of stuff. Basically, Fedora's a design agency. We had gotten to a point where other projects that were not affiliated with Fedora were asking us for help because we had built a bit of a following. So we thought, well, you know, if we're working on stuff outside of Fedora, maybe we should have a more open name. So that's why we've sort of trying to rebrand ourselves as the community design team. The project that I'm working on right now is a project called Popman Desktop, and it is a desktop client that lets you manage containers. And it is a cross-platform tool, which is a new challenge for me, which I'm very excited about because I normally work on Linux platform tools and designing for a Mac and Windows is a new thing for me. (laughs) I had to, I bought an old Mac off of eBay because, you know, to legally run Mac OS, you need to buy a Mac. And my husband made jokes about divorcing me because he is a GNOME developer. (laughs) So we had a bit of fun with that. (laughs) But yeah. Okay, so there's a few things that you said that I think I understand objectively what upstream design means and patching means. But for the podcast that we have, we have like mixed audiences listening. So uh, maybe a number of the open source familiar people that are listening will understand that. But some of our designers in the audience that are less familiar with some of the terminology and open source might be good to explain what upstream is and upstream in this context and also what patching is and what patching is in this the context of design. Sure. So the concept of upstream and open source software, I like to explain it using the academic model, right? So you have like all of these different disciplines that are putting out research and you sort of build on what other people have done to further the field. So when you're building open source software, generally you're taking bits and pieces and parts that other projects and other communities have made and sort of using them as libraries or using them as assets and building your own thing. So a practical example would be if you're building a website, you might use a project called Tailwind, which is a upstream, you know, CSS framework. Well, it's a little bit more than that, but to simplify, I'll just say that. And so you didn't write Tailwind from scratch. You're using something that somebody else made. So when you're using something that somebody else made and shared openly, you are using an upstream. And that project that you are using is upstream to what you are building. It's almost like a family tree relationship. So if something happens to that upstream, like you think of like your grandpa's upstream view, this Tailwind project is upstream of my new web application. If Tailwind changes something, it's going to impact me downstream. So maybe the family tree analogy might make more sense, except maybe not. I don't know. But that's how I think about it. Cool. Yeah. Upstream is like a concept that can be tricky sometimes. But I think in the simplest terms, it's like thinking about what impacts what you're building. And I don't think that's necessarily something that designers that are not designing in an open source ecosystem aren't familiar with. It's it's something that we can all relate to. But patching was the other term that you used. I'd love to know how you would define what design patching means. Well, in the sense that I used it, it's really patching might be the more kind way of saying it. I, I also like to say putting lipstick on the pig because there's an issue with the design and that issue is really fundamental to some core decision that was made about the technology that limits what design could do. Think of like a building or a room where there's like a column or a beam like in the center of the space. And it's like, wow, I really wish that column wasn't there. It really impacts 
the feeling of the space. So if you were to patch the design of that column, you might paint it a specific color so it's not as noticeable. Or you might say, oh, well, you know, the column's there. I'm going to go all in and do something wild with it, like turn it into a fake tree or something and like make it look like there's a tree in the center of the room. You have a lemon and you're trying to make lemonade. So that's the sense that I use it. I love that way of explaining patch. So something else you spoke about was how the team that you're on, the community design team, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Community design team sounded to me like the concept of like an internal agency. So this is something that I'm familiar with in proprietary commercial places. And I am curious to know what kinds of things maybe you were asked of other teams initially and kind of that journey from serving one team to serving multiple teams and how did you grow that internal agency and I'd love to just hear more about like how that happens within the open source space if there's anything that you is unique about the way that an internal agency operates for open source tools. This is something that Mike Nolan I believe from Open at RIT talked about in his talk yesterday where people will come to designers and be like can you make me a logo we call that kind of the gateway to getting into design because we don't necessarily just want to be a logo slot machine. We would really like to have more of an in-depth impact. But that's sort of usually the typical introduction that other projects have when they come to us, that they need a logo. Okay, talk to the designers. And we use that as a conversation opener to talk more deeply about, you know, what's your target audience for this tool? Who uses it? What do they want to do with it? Does it interact with other tools? Can we build sort of larger bridges between all these different tools and have them collaborate and just for the, the benefit of the end user? I've never worked in an internal design agency, so I'm not quite sure what like the compare contrast would be there. But certainly, I would say if you're an internal design agency, you're probably restricted to connections between products that are already within your company. Whereas we can have a broader view and look across the entire space of open source technology and build bridges between projects that, again, it, if it was a company context, they would be competitors, maybe. From my experience in commercial space, the concept of an internal agency typically exists to, I'm dragging my old organizations, which I won't name, to save money, essentially. So if uh, organization contracts out an agency to do a specific thing, bringing it internal helps them save money. But I think what you spoke about is really beautiful that the opportunity within the kind of environment that you're in is that a product or a tool team coming to you for, say, something that is easily understandable, like a logo, like uh, we talk a lot about on this podcast about the kinds of design that are accessible to people that are non-design language proficient yet. And you use it as an opportunity to have a wider conversation about what it means to be user-centered or what it means to address user needs. Have you got any examples of like that conversation about how that has happened with a particular tool that you can talk about? Absolutely. So my team internally at Red Hat is within the same organization as the engineering team that builds Podman, which is a container engine. And that team is very Linux focused because, you know, Podman it, containers are Linux and it's they need to be experts in that tech stack. The team that I'm working with in building Podman Desktop is actually from a completely different department at Red Hat that's focused on developers and developer tooling. And their team is really proficient at building front ends in Mac and Windows. And they're building a GUI that uses 
Podman, the container engine, there these two teams are collaborating very tightly together because one is building the UI for the other. And one of the wonderful things that comes from that collaboration is that the Podman desktop team brings actual end user use cases like you know, the developer wants to deploy this container to Kubernetes, so they need this feature and Podman doesn't have it yet. Can you prioritize it? And the Podman team is excited about this because number one, it's bringing this entire other user base to them, which is Mac and Windows users, which I will say fairly, like there's no reason just because you don't use an open source OS, it doesn't mean you shouldn't benefit from software freedom, right? But they're bringing their use cases to the Podman team who are before this collaboration, we're typically hearing from you know, Linux heads, like not other outside of that community. So they're getting this whole new perspective and this whole new focus on the user that they never had the opportunity to hear about before because they were in so many of the low level system details. They didn't really have that visibility. So I think that would be a really good example, actually, of and it's also bridging two different teams to work together, which I also think is always like a magical thing. That's beautiful to hear. We talk a lot again on this podcast about the role of design being glue in a lot of ways and facilitative in, a, in its like essence. And I think sometimes that comes as a surprise to folks that are non like aren't familiar with the design process, just being that that sense of trying to understand all the different perspectives. So it's great to hear an example of how that works. I've got tons more questions about lots of different things. I really want to ask about your thoughts and opinions, like you talked about software, free software should be available to anybody, regardless of what they're using tools wise, right? And I think this came up a lot at FOSTEM this year in various different rooms where often there's exclusionary language used towards people that don't use a particular system. And I think that this particularly kind of is relevant to designers because often designers are using systems that are not like the typical open source systems. What would you say to designers and what would you recommend to designers is that maybe some of the ways which you can start to engage with some of those kinds of open source systems while still retaining like the opinions or like the comfort of using like the Mac kind of systems. Is there anything that you would like recommend that they start with? The two things I would say, I guess, is the first one is that don't worry about the dogma because some people just don't know better, you know. The other thing would be there's practical reasons for adopting open source tooling. There's many, many practical reasons. And I would just say just try to be open to them. Like I understand that when you have a tool and you've built so many hours of experience in it, it becomes an extension of you and it's very difficult to move to another tool. But I think trying to adopt just, again, use the Mac, that's fine. But if you could try PenPod or if you could try Inkscape and try it, it will make it easier to work with you in the open source context. And I'll give one example. I had to work with, I won't name it, but there was a particular upstream open source project that's pretty well known. They had engaged with some designers and the designers used a unnamed cloud-based design tool to give them a whole set of mockups and templates and stuff. And I was to pick up the pieces of that. The problem is that the project didn't own the license. It was that individual designer and the individual designer, I think they either moved companies or they just basically didn't renew the subscription. So by the time I got to the project, I'm clicking through to all the mock, they're gone. No way to recover them. Nobody knows the password, nobody knows. So that project was set back so far from a proprietary tool being introduced into the mix. So 
having files in open standard-based formats and in open source tooling means that project won't be left high and dry when you've moved on. So it's maybe not a very designer-centric. I'm coming more from the project perspective, but... And those designers will be able to access them as well, right? Like if you need them again for your portfolio, you can access them again. Like I've found myself unable to access some files. I was like, oh no, I really should have saved these so that I could use them for my portfolio. So there are benefits for everyone all around. So we need to wrap up, sadly. But I want to ask you one last question about Pimpot Fest. What has been your highlight of the festival so far? I was actually really intrigued by Martin Owen's talk about the SVG standard. Because people, when you're talking about standards, it's sort of like, oh, yeah, there's these guys in the corner working on it and they're taking care of it. And maybe that's not necessarily the case for SVG. And his proposal that we start thinking about making a separate editable SVG standard and finding a good home for it. I think for projects like Penpot, for projects like Inkscape, having that kind of stewardship focused that way, because they, they have a long history of issues with the W3C spec. That was a very interesting perspective to me. It's not something I think about. It's something I just sort of take for granted is that, oh, SVG exists and I use it. So I, I thought that was a really mind-opening talk. Maureen, where can people find you on the internet if they want to learn more about what you do? The best place is my blog. It's blog.linuxgirl.com, but it's linuxgirl.com, so it's L-I-N-U-X-G-R-R-L. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. And the lovely little tidbit to take away is, hey, designers, maybe get interested in open source standards. They actually are super cool and super nerdy and fun to learn about. Okay, thank you again. See you again next time. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to Sustain Design Podcast. It's a sunny day outside here in Barcelona, Spain. We're here for Penpot Fest. Penpot is a design tool, so if you're not familiar with that, go check it out. Awesome design tool. My name is Victor Brown, and with me I have Harry. And over across us, because it's live, right? Yeah. So we have... Martin. Martin is here with us, and we're going to talk about design and sustained design and all of what Martin has been doing in the design community and also in the ecosystem, open source ecosystem at large. Martin, over to you so you could introduce yourself. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. My name is Martin Owens. Um, I'm an Inkscape developer. What that means is essentially that I'm an independent. I don't work for any company, but I work on the Inkscape project. And I'm also a free software advocate. I'm very interested in the politics of free software and finding practical solutions that enable us to get to the ideal of freedom without compromising how we get there. So what I wanted to talk to you about is the experiment that I've been running over the past two years of not taking private and proprietary software development contracts and instead asking designers and users of Inkscape to fund me directly. So do you want to talk more about being a freelance developer in the open source space? Yeah, so... I have been a contractor now for about 12 years. And what I noticed was is that the people that pay me to program so software, these are the people who get ultimate say in what gets developed. This is correct, right? They're paying my bills, so therefore they get to make the choices about what's developed. When it's a private piece of so software, it doesn't really matter, right? It's never going to see anybody else. But when a company is paying me to work on a piece of open source software, 
those choices do matter. They matter to the people who are going to be downloading that software in some future state. And these companies have an outsized impact in making decisions about what features and what bugs and how things are made. My intention is really to refocus how some developers think about ourselves and about our work and trying to see if it is possible to have decisions made by the people who they will impact the most. Philosophically, this is based on the idea that the four freedoms that we want users to have, i.e. the freedom to use for any purpose, the freedom to educate themselves, freedom to modify, and the freedom to share. The problem is, is that you cannot really have the freedom to modify if you don't have the skills to be a programmer. And for the longest time in the open source community, we have required basically everybody who wants to be free to be a programmer. And I personally do not think that that's acceptable. I think there has to be a way of having specialized skills like being programmers and also allowing people to get the modifications that they want. One way to do this is to do things over commerce. People can pay me to essentially act on their behalf. And this is what clients do when a big business comes to me and they say, Martin, we would like this feature in Inkscape. They give me a bag of money and then I go and program them. But this introduces, as I said before, a weighting towards the people who have large bags of money. And so the decisions tend towards what large companies want, and they tend away from what individual designers want. When you started talking, you spoke about discussing with developers and users about what features they want and how you could like include that in Inkscape and all of that. So what would you say your primary clients are? The users or Inkscape community or those are the clients that come out to reach out to? I have three main groups of people who I contract with, essentially. The first is private contracts, right? I still keep some contracts because I need to be able to pay the bills. And this is an experiment, so it's not going to be affordable immediately. The second is Patreon. I use Patreon to effectively collect together very small amounts of money from lots of individuals. And with hundreds of users, it's possible to get enough of money to be able to do something. And hopefully they will be able to pay for my time to focus on the kinds of things that individuals want. So far, I've been running the Patreon for about two and a half years. For this project, I create weekly videos that describe all of the things that I do. And I try and invite users into understanding the process of creating software, as well as trying to explain, you know, some of the features that I'm building, how the process works for creating for designers, and what kind of timescales are necessary in order to build new things. People who use the software basically come and ask you for what you need to like work on. How do you prioritize when you have like so many requests from users? How do you know which and which you should deliver first and then? Yes, that was definitely a worry that I would have lots of requests and people coming to me. It's turned out that that has not been as much of a problem. Firstly, because I think there's a lot of general problems that people have. So they tend to have the same issues. But there's also a lot of people who are not using their Patreon subscription to ask me to do things. They're using it to promote the work that I'm doing and therefore like just joining in the union. Maybe they ask a question immediately. Maybe they wait two years. I had a recent 
request from a user where they wanted to know how to do a specific thing. And they had been a subscriber for two, two years. And it was good to be able to answer that question. And I'm sure it was good for them to have a relationship that they could depend on to ask. Maybe that would have turned into a bug report. Maybe that would have just turned into an answer that I could give to them straight away. But that relationship ongoing means that, you know, they're willing to put their money in over time. And so it doesn't flood me immediately with lots of requests. Mm -hmm. But when I do have a situation where I have to prioritize, I try to think about also the thing that's going to have the greatest benefit for everybody. If it's crashes, first of all, that's going to be important. And also, is it something that's going to happen a lot? Is it going to affect a lot of people? And also, is there multiple people asking for it at the same time? Those tend to make things more important. I know that Inkscape has like different functionalities and features. Are there any like lesser known features that you think you'd want to highlight? I mean, that's a good one because Inkscape is such a chaotic project. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, it, it, it contains such a wide variety of contributors and it's 20 years old, which means that it has grown with a lot of different ideas about what fun functionality should exist. If a user is listening now and they are trying Inkscape out and they want to experiment with new things, look at the extensions, look at all of the different things that other programmers who write things in Python, they have written. We ship some, but they're also downloadable. The other thing I would suggest is to go onto YouTube and to look up video tutorials. Maybe even if you're an expert in Inkscape, there are so many great videos showing functionality, either functionality that a developer created many, many years ago and not many people know about it, or even functionality that the developers never even intended. And artists have found a way to create something beautiful out of the functionality that we have. It sounds like you're doing a real amazing job. And just before we go, I wanted to ask if over the years, has there been any way you have measured the impact of your work? And um, is there anything you'd like to share about that? It's hard, honestly, because um, the Inkscape project doesn't track metrics. We find it's very important to make sure that our website, for instance, doesn't track people. And it, it's sometimes hard to gauge whether the Inkscape project is gaining in momentum. We do know that Inkscape is used by millions of people people, each release gets millions of downloads. It tends to covet a lot of respect from people when you ask them. I do appreciate, because I'm vain, getting people thanking me. You know, it is nice to actually hear from individuals. And it's also nice to see people making things. They create a thing with Inkscape and they mention Inkscape by name. And I feel like I've, I've somehow had a part in that, in that artwork. Maybe I'm just compensating for the fact that my art skills are not exactly great. So... Is there any other thing you'd like to share that probably didn't ask? If listeners are interested in looking at my work, I have a YouTube account where you can see all of my past videos. I'd also encourage anybody who's interested in funding my work to go to patreon.com forward slash Dr. Mo. There will be a link in yeah. the show notes. And I do want to shout out to all of my sponsors. Some of them have been with me for years and this is an experiment and they're trusting me with their money. One more thing before we leave, I know you mentioned that you are trying to change the narrative of open sources mainly for programmers. Are there like any practices or strategies that you would recommend since we are basically growing that ecosystem right now? Yeah, so I think the most important thing I've learned is it's all about relationships. My patron is, is creating a set of relationships, but they're not the only ones. It's possible to have even just friendships or camaraderie or groupings or ways in which developers can know and be friends with people who are not programmers. 
these relationships are important because it provides a way of programmers understanding better either the people that they're trying to serve or the impacts of the changes that they are trying to drive. Okay, so since we're in Barcelona for Pimpot Fest, what's your favorite thing so far? There's a lot of really great things. I, I have enjoyed practicing Mi Espanol. I've been trying to learn it for 12 years, and this is the first time I've had an opportunity to actually practice with real people. The actual conference has been really well run. I have full respect for the people who have managed to put this together, and I have enjoyed the food. It's been good. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Feel free to scout Internet for Sustained Design podcast and listen to other ones because there will be a lot. So see you.